The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. Yes, the inauguration of the vice president was this amazing historic moment. The vice president-elect of the United States, Kamala Devi Harris. And I was absolutely moved by it. The first woman vice president, the first VP of color, being sworn in by the first Latina Supreme Court justice. The woman barrier, the color barrier for vice president is broken forevermore. And then it just turned a little too prematurely self-congratulatory. All these talks of like, the barriers are broken, which like, it's true. Yes, firsts matter tremendously, but it's everything that comes afterwards that really signals change. It's just so soon to pat ourselves on the back because firsts are rocky and difficult. Ask someone who has been a first. I was the first Latina to create star in their own network sitcom in TV history. And I was American TV history, obviously <laughs> Latinas and Latin American countries have done it. And also I was the first Latina to star in a Pixar movie, Cars 3. That was Cruz Ramirez. Before Coco. Right before Coco, let me tell you. <laughs> As comedian, writer, and activist Cristela Alonso will tell you, Sometimes you don't want to be the first. The temptation to break a barrier can pull you away from the work you actually want to do. The huge question that I had for you is like, how do you go to these places that have never been gone before and still be choosy? Because I heard that you turned down The View. I did. I did. The View has an audience of 2.5 million people every single day. When Cristela was offered the job as a host, that would have made her the first representative of the Chicanx experience regularly seated at that table. But part of her fight is choosing her battles. One of the biggest things I had was that I grew up in poverty. So growing up in poverty actually gave me the ability to say no, because I know what it's like to come from nothing. So at the end of the day, if I end up with nothing, that is my familiar spot. That is my comfort zone. And also, I've always said, I just love, I love what I do. I have so many people in my past, you know, they do say, I want to be rich and famous. And I always start thinking that's going to be your downfall right off the bat. Because how much fame is enough? How much money is enough? If you can't put... If you can't put like an amount of it, like a, a goal, a, something, you'll never be happy. It'll never be enough. When The View came up, and I loved Whoopi, I loved Raven, Nicole Wallace was back on in that time. Like, it, we had a great, it's a great time, but I didn't like the energy of it for me. When I got offered the job, I knew immediately I was going to be miserable. Yeah. I felt like the fighting was going to get worse. I felt like just, is it all worth it? Like, is it worth my men mental state to have this much money, you know? And right. I said, no, I said no. And my agents, they were like, oh, I get it. You're negotiating. Here's more money. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want the money. Like, I, no, I, I so don't want the money. And they're like, okay. 
But for me, I'm choosy because I also love this thing that I do so much that I want to be happy doing the thing that I do. That's the weird thing. Christella has been an activist for years. But after the 2016 election, she took a step back from show business entirely. A break from being a first. A pause from blazing paths. To maintain the paths that already existed. People were asking me, like, why haven't you created another show? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And I said, honestly, I don't feel like being funny right now. I think that, you know, Dolores Huerta is my mentor and one of my best friends. No way. Dolores Huerta, the iconic activist who, with Cesar Chavez, helped organize the farm workers movement. She actually coined the phrase, si se puede. I love her. Like, cool. Yes, you know, and we're both members of a nonprofit where she and I, during election cycles, will do bus tours together to get people to go out. And, you know, we try to focus on Spanish speaking communities, farm worker communities to get people to go out and vote. And we always talk about how when you're in the movement, when you're in a movement and you're trying to see progress, it's so hard to see the actual progress. Because we always want to see the end result. So as we try to go towards the end result, we don't take time to celebrate the little wins here and there. Dolores and I have always talked about that, the celebrating the wins along the way. Uh, the wins along the way get you through the losses. Do you actually celebrate? Like, do you and Dolores were to, like, take a shot? Like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what? Actually? Yes, actually. So uh, Dolores oh loves a good, like, uh, tequila. And she likes to dance. She likes to listen to listen to live music, everything. We've had those moments. And even after, like during elections, you know, once the election's done, we drank the tequila. We went out of the bar once we were kicked out of it because it was closing <laughs> at like four in the morning or something. We're outside. And all of a sudden we start saying, OK, so what we need to work on is creating a plan to get Texas to be able to register voters easily online and da 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 and, and we start talking about how to get people to register yeah. to vote. Yeah. That's how we work. Yeah. You know, so again, I had said no to the view because it wasn't me, mm. but spending the middle of the night in, in New York City with Dolores talking about how to get people to register to vote online in other states like Texas, that feels right to me. Yeah. I just want to do what I can to see that my people are safe. And by my people, I mean like my friends and my family and just anybody I could try to help and amplify. And I did it. And now I feel like I'm ready to go back to work. And my first project was the Chicano Squad. She's the host of a new documentary podcast called Chicano Squad. And in many ways, it's about being a first and the challenges and complexities in that position. So Chicano Squad is a story of the first all Latino homicide squad in the United States. And what starts the story to be so fascinating is how they were created. And you realize that there was a problem in policing. Go figure, you know, in the 70s, where um, in the Houston population, there was a, a big growing number of undocumented immigrants coming from mostly Mexico at that time, where 
they couldn't really get any crime solved. If anything happened to them, everything would just kind of go on like it didn't happen because the police department didn't have Spanish speakers. Sometimes if you didn't speak Spanish, they couldn't even write your name correctly. So if you look back, there, there's not a lot of files that exist about Latino, you know, crimes being committed on the Latino community. Hmm. But the tension between police and the community they were supposed to be protecting came to a head in 1977. So what happened is they ended up, the HPD, the Houston Police Department, ended up murdering an Army veteran, a 23-year-old Latino Army veteran. The brutal murder of Jose Campos Torres set Houston aflame. Protesters filled the streets chanting his name. Torres's life was immortalized in chants, in artworks, in songs. Murió Jose Campos Torres, la policía lo mató. Hoy en la buena para la gente mexicana. It opened up this tension that had existed between the Latino community and the police department where no one could really communicate. No one trusted the other person. No one trusted anybody. So the Houston Police Department, they decided to try this experiment where they said, hey, what if, I mean, this is crazy, but what if we get police officers that speak Spanish to talk to people in the community that speak Spanish and see what happens. And everybody's like, whoa, this is just, this sounds crazy enough to work, you know? And that's what happened. And that's how the Chicano Squad happened. And the series follows each officer who joins up with the Chicano Squad as they struggle to pass biased entrance exams, meet the arbitrary height requirement. Basically, they have to transcend all these barriers that were efficiently and silently erected to keep them out. And still, a number of these officers had grown up on the other side of the law, harassed for their papers, watching as their friends and siblings were chased by cops. They had to really ask themselves if they wanted to become firsts in a space like the Houston Police Department basically playing a part in the system that marginalized and terrorized their community. For me, American Latino history means that we have to tell people that we have been here and contributed to this country since the beginning, even before the country was the United States. If we're only telling that story from one point of view, which was that undocumented immigrants or Spanish-speaking people, they just had crime that was so hard to solve, they couldn't do it. But when we actually get to see that the people, that there were actually like Spanish-speaking cops, Latinos that grew up in those Spanish-speaking neighborhoods, when we see that they were there, that they're police officers and can do the police work, that all the other ones that couldn't speak Spanish thought was impossible, then we realize those stories need to be told because it's great to tell these stories about Latinos and doing amazing things and everything, but we also have to remind people, by the way, they were cops. And this is also to say, when the Chicano Squad formed, it didn't mean they were suddenly welcomed with open arms and given all the resources and embraced by the community and the system alike. I mean, they were basically given an impossible job. Go solve this 
huge number of murder cases and make peace with the community. The Chicano Squad, when they started, had nothing. They got no budget for anything. I just finished recording an episode, the seventh episode, that I tell you, I'm going to be honest, when I was recording this episode, I was so angry Mm. at narrating this podcast, like this episode, because I was upset at the lack of resources they got, and they still got the job done. After the break, hear the origins of the Chicano Squad and the story of the murder of Jose Campos Torres, which started it all. It was a spring afternoon in Houston in 1978. The date was May 7th. It was a Sunday after Cinco de Mayo. Thousands of people gathered at a sprawling green space north of downtown called Moody Park to celebrate the Mexican holiday. Now, as a Tejana, that's a Mexican-American Texan, I can't help but think of my own typical Sundays with my family, filled with pan dulce and barbacoa runs, so we could celebrate the weekend with the Mexican staples. In 1978, the neighborhood near Moody Park was largely Latino, mostly of Mexican descent. Still is today, and so Cinco de Mayo was a holiday to celebrate exuberantly. I don't consider it a holiday myself, but the U.S. sure seems to think it is. That day, live Tejano bands played, and the park's 35 acres were full of family picnics. But as festive as the event was, a certain charge, an ominous energy, lurked beneath the surface. In 1978, there was another very all-American aspect to the scene in Moody Park. Carlos Calvillo, a local activist, remembers. That particular one was very different because uh, for about a year, the community had been really upset and just angry at the Houston Police Department for what they perceived that had happened to Joe Campos Torres. Exactly one year earlier, on Cinco de Mayo in 1977, a young Latino veteran named Jose Campos Torres had died while in custody of the Houston Police Department. And anger over the case had not subsided, only grown. It was a year full of marches, protests outside City Hall, and increasingly heated exchanges between HPD and the community. We were demanding two things, justice for Jose Campos Torres and jail the murdering cops for life. That, those were our simple demands. This is Travis Morales. Travis is an activist who grew up in Houston and was at Moody Park that day. Some people told us before Moody Park that if the cops got off, that there was going to be a riot. Um, quite frankly, I didn't believe it at the time. And the cops did get off. Just five weeks before that sunny Cinco de Mayo in Moody Park, a decision came down in Jose Campos Torres' case. The cops got a slap on the wrist. For a community that had been waiting, they felt justice had not been served. Despite the underlying tension, the park had remained peaceful, jovial, festive throughout the day. That changed at about 7.30 that night. A small fight over a girl broke out between two intoxicated men. Park police officers tried to stop the fight, and suddenly 
it was like someone had thrown a lit match on gas. Adrian Garcia was a teenager attending the celebration that day. As those officers in the park used force to try and break up the fight, the crowd reacted. That's when the rocks and the bottles uh, started to fly. Then that's when you got into a, a true riot mode. Two reporters from Channel 2, Jack Cato and Phil Archer, were taking pictures of the burning car when they were attacked. Black jackets and shields were handed out, and the officers formed a line to move to the scene. These chaotic clips taken by a news crew at ABC 13 on the ground that night in Moody Park sound like they could have been ripped from any of the protests that have erupted across America today. Some motorists found themselves greeted with drawn pistols. Martinez and I had that experience ourselves. The police officer was just run down. Police right now are calling for an ambulance as this officer lies seriously wounded here in the street. The death of Jose Campos Torres at the hands of the Houston Police Department would be the spark that set off a powder keg that had been brewing between Houston's Mexican-American community and its police department for a long time. It would push the city of Houston to the brink and it would destroy the last shred of trust the Houston Latino community had in the police department meant to protect them. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad, a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. I'm Cristel Alonso. I'm a comedian, actress, and activist. And I'm also first-generation Mexican-American born and raised in Texas. As a Latina, I have broken the glass ceiling and made TV film history twice. History is important to me, especially telling stories about my Latino community, even stories that are difficult. This year, protests led by the Black Lives Matter movement revealed to much of this country something they never knew about, a problem that has existed for decades. I have to admit, I've seen some people within my own Latino community react as if these protests are not about them, or rather, us. So, it's time to go back. Our story begins exactly one year before the Moody Park riot would shake Houston. It was early on the morning of May 8, 1977, when one of J.C. Freeman's pontoon tour boats was navigating through the already steamy, slow-moving water of Houston's Buffalo Bayou. Okay, you have to know, Houston's bayous are its lifeline. Between... The concrete, the skyscrapers, the medical centers, the shopping malls, the posh neighborhoods, and the barrios. The bayous go on for 2,500 miles. They weave underneath tangled highway interchanges and sky-tickling overpasses, past skyscrapers, right through the heart of downtown and into Galveston Bay. 
Over the years, many of these waterways had become badly polluted. It wasn't uncommon for Houstonians to dump broken appliances and other garbage into them. I'm not kidding. We even heard a story about how they used to hold a race in Buffalo Bayou every year called the Reeking Regatta. How about that for a picture? And by the late 70s, parts of them were thick with brown, foul-smelling water. Plenty of people loved to make fun of the bayous. But for J.C. Freeman, it was all love. The heron birds and the special seabirds. And you know, porpoise came up to Memorial Park. That's how clean it used to be, and everybody used to go skinny dipping in, in the bio. Come on now. J.C. had spent years building up a successful tour boat company that ferried families and students through the peaceful bayou that splices through the heart of Houston. But on this particular morning, May 8, 1977, Freeman was about to become a part of history. Overnight, he kept his boat safe by paying some of the guys who slept on a landing on the bayou to watch over his fleet. Two days earlier, when he'd arrived at the landing in the morning, some of the guys told him they heard something suspicious overnight. They were crashed out, and they heard something going on on the other side of the bio, and you could hear the echo underneath the Fannin Street Bridge. The men said they'd heard a commotion on the other side of the bayou. And they kind of saw these, these cops uh, over there uh, take the handcuffs off the, the guy and uh, threw him in the bio. The men described what they thought was a man falling with an unforgettable splash into the murky water of Buffalo Bayou. The story sounded crazy. Then, on that balmy May morning, he looked up and saw one of his boat operators speeding back towards the landing with a look of panic. He had seen a body floating in the water. And uh, he picked me up and I, we went down there the men pulled the body onto the deck of the pontoon boat. It was obvious that the man's body had been in the water for a few days. It was disfigured and the body was degrading very quickly. J.C. Freeman began trying to figure out who the man was. All these years later, his memory is hazy, but he recalls finding dog tags. He called the police to report the body and read the name to the dispatcher. Jose Torres. I said, hey, uh, do you have a line on this person? What the dispatcher said next stopped him in his tracks. And they said, yeah, he's in police custody right now. I said, no, he's not. He's down here on the bio. We just fished him out of the bio. Something had obviously happened between the time Jose had been in police custody and the time his body was fished from the water something that would change life dramatically for the city of Houston for years to come. Jose Campos Torres's family had started to get nervous. His sister Janie was only 10 at the time, but still remembers it all clear as day. I know it was Cinco de Mayo. He was out that day, went to a neighborhood cantina a couple of blocks away from the house. Now, everyone knew that Jose Campos Torres liked to visit the neighborhood bars, the cantinas. He was especially fond of one in the heart of Houston's East End neighborhood called Club 21, where he often fought with the bartender and anyone else who wanted to argue. But everyone also knew that no matter what, 
he always showed up to work. At the time, he lived with his grandmother. The day after Cinco de Mayo, she grew worried when she realized he hadn't come home, and even more worried when she heard from a co-worker that Jose hadn't been at work. As word got out that he was missing, Jose's family gathered at his grandmother's house, a few blocks from Club 21. So my aunts and my dad and everybody was looking for him, calling around, trying to find out where he could be at or who he last with. The Torres family was well-known in the Houston vecindario, the neighborhood they called home. Okay, a quick sidebar here. In the series, you might hear some people use the word barrios. For me, barrios has a negative connotation, similar to the word ghetto. So I prefer to call them simply vecindarios. In the Torres home, there were three boys and three girls. Jose was the oldest. All the kids were born and raised in Houston. There were also aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, and babies. The Torres family was large. For a kid like Janie, waiting for news about her favorite brother was agonizing. We knew that he wasn't in hospital. We knew that he wasn't in jail. Um, one day passed, and then when Friday passed, Friday payday didn't show up. Jose missing payday was a big deal. Jose's mother grew quiet. Now as a mother herself, Janie understands her mother's quiet all too well. Now today, I kind of see that my mom was more quiet. I saw her more, of course, down, you know, and things like that. That's probably, you know, a mother's instinct, you know, feeling when your child's no longer with you, you know. It, it, she just had no confirmation yet, but it's like every mother knows their kid. Torres's sister hugged me and was crying, saying nobody has told Jose's story the way that you told it. She says he's either a superhero or he's a villain, but you made him real. That's Dwight Watson, an associate professor of history at Texas State University in San Marcos. Dwight researched the Houston Police Department, including the Jose Campos Torres case, for his book called Race and the Houston Police Department. A change did come. And he's gone through every moment of the night Jose Campos Torres went missing. As we've mentioned, Jose was a veteran. And as Dwight told us, Jose had returned from the Army with more than just a rucksack. He was part of an elite mountain unit, according to the record. The end of the Vietnam War brought home veterans. It brought on people who were damaged by the war. One person was like, that was Jose Campos Torres. Jose came home with a serious drinking problem. He became a professional drinker, and he drank from sunup to sundown. When he was sober, Jose was serious and disciplined, a man with plans. But he had been struggling for eight months, unable to find a job in solid footing back home in Houston. Finally, in April of 1977, things began to look up. Jose got a job making $2.75 an hour as a glass contractor. It was a relief, and the jingle in his pocket wasn't bad either. And on Cinco de Mayo, Jose took some of that jingle out to celebrate, like so many others in Houston. Jose's favorite place to blow off steam was Club 21. It was a bar on the bottom of a two-story white brick building on Canal Street, a hole-in-the-wall kind of place where the beer was cheap. 
he and the bar owner had a contentious relationship. And on that night, he and the bartender got into a fight. It was a hell of a fight, because they called the police. The bartender had had enough of Jose, who was at the end of a 12-hour drinking bender. He had asked him to leave, but Jose refused. So the bartender called HPD. And the police knew Jose, they said, that they had had a run-in with him before. Jose's previous drunken fights had landed him in handcuffs and behind bars in the Harris County Jail a time or two before. So when the policeman showed up to pull him out of the bar, he didn't go quietly. He was beyond belligerent. He was screaming and cussing, and there was a lot of cussing back and forth at him by part of the officers. Jose yelled at the officers, calling them pigs. The officers decided, as one of them would later tell a source, to teach Torres a lesson. They took Jose to a quiet spot they called The Hole. There were a few places like it around town, secluded spots where uniform officers might park their cars, crank up the AC and catch a snooze on a hot summer day. But this particular spot they headed for that night was a parking lot in the shadows of downtown buildings along Buffalo Bayou, far from Jose's East End home in Club 21. So they got out, beat the hell out of him. Okay, trigger warning. I have to let you know this next part, it's emotional. 40 years later and it still feels raw. Maybe it's because we're still hearing stories like this today, but it's important to tell. So this is what happened. They beat Jose with their batons and their bare hands. Once they finished, they loaded him, bruised and broken, back into the squad car and drove him to the jail. But when he arrived at the jail looking like he did, the admitting officer wouldn't take him. Houston had had a series of events where prisoners in the jail had either died or been seriously hurt. And so the jail would no longer take a prisoner that had visible scars or marks or looked like he was in need of medical attention. So they had already kind of beat the hell out of Torres and the jailer said, no, we're not going to take him. The officers were told to take him instead to a hospital, but they didn't. So they decide during the drive that they're not going to do that. The officers headed back to the hole. They even called buddies to come. They get on the radio and say, meet us at uh, the spot. They got somebody who need to teach a lesson. And so with batons and, and flashlights, and they basically beat the hell out of Torres. One of the officers walked Jose Campos Torres to the edge of the lot where, depending on who you believe, he was either pushed, fell, or jumped 20 feet down into the dark, polluted water of Buffalo Bayou. His handcuffs were off at that time, but he was already still drunk. And sometime between the buff whooping and letting him go, Torres drowned. Jose died in the murky water of Buffalo Bayou. Houston would never be the same. Chicano Squad is a production of Vox Media and Frequency Machine. Go find it however you found us. Our introduction was produced by Brandon McFarland with Ode White, Nishat Kerwa, Stella Bugby, Hannah Rosen, Jasmine Aguilera, B.A. Parker, Allison Berenger, and me. We are a production of New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thanks for listening. 
Mm-hmm.